The theory of evolution has to be one of the most corrosive worldviews ever articulated. Its pernicious premise is that humanity and the complexity of creation is merely a cosmic accident, a result of innumerable mutations by which the fittest survive, and happily for us, there is no fitter animal than mankind. But are you only an animal? Evolution is the theory that even the human minds which came up with it are nothing more reliable than the random chemical processes of organic but meaningless machines. It undermines the very notion of the objectivity and the knowability of truth itself, a notion which the radical left have no problem but deep affinity with. Evolution further supports a nihilistic worldview that every person is an accidental animal with nothing but nothingness as our final destiny. In such a depressing universe, morality and meaning are merely social constructs without objective reality or external authority. According to evolution, there is no greater moral worth to a man than a mouse. It is totally consistent with evolution and integrous for ideological vegans to feel morally superior, as they regard the farming of animals for food morally indistinguishable from slavery and murder. If we're just animals, why not? Genesis, on the other hand, if to be read as literal history and not mere allegory or poetry to describe evolutionary processes with God more or less involved in millions of years and death as his tool of choice, Genesis teaches that the designer God made man differently to everything else in the universe. He put his likeness in us alone. He made us alone, eternal, spiritual, not just physical, creative, moral, and self-aware, with the capacity for free will with which to do good or not. This much is surely obvious and the best explanation of the available evidence, as opposed to the enormous faith required to believe in gazillions of years of chaotic cosmic accidents resulting in the soaring capacities of the human spirit. Surely millions of billions of explosions in a watch factory couldn't result in a Rolex. No more than millions of billions of explosions over trillions of years in a printing factory could result in 32 leather-bound volumes of Encyclopedia Britannica. Yet remarkably complex mechanical designs and immense volumes of coherently organized information is exactly what modern education systems claim the science says resulted from evolution. They believe something suddenly happened to nothing and everything was the result. That destruction and mutation happened so often that molecules became goo, became fish, became animals, became sophisticated people. But even still, evolution is completely clueless in attempting to offer any explanation for the first cause. I am ashamed and in awe of such superior faith to anything I possess as a believer in Genesis as history. All I have to stretch my faith to consider possible is that there is intelligent life beyond this spinning sphere and the boundaries of the known universe and that he is unlike the wildest imaginations of Hollywood alien films, not limited to the realms of existence we have developed the technology to perceive, let alone prove. All I have to believe is in a single entity who, by nature and definition, is unbound by linear time or physical space, 
and whose intelligence makes all of the knowledge and information in the modern world's universities and internet seem like a single compound of H2O in an ocean of knowing, and who lacks no ability or power to do anything doable within his nature, including things far beyond the comprehension or measurability of or by humanity. Such an advanced entity would obviously be able to transcend the laws of entropy and thermodynamics as effortlessly as a hummingbird transcends the laws of gravity. Believing Almighty God then communicated what he did is easy and takes little faith. Believing he did what he said he did is to know he is eternal truth and perfection and incapable of deceit or evil. The solution to the toxic sickness of gender confusion and sexual confusion is Genesis. The historical teaching which Jesus emphatically endorsed as required reading for questions about marriage. God designed you. He planned you to be male or female, to know right from wrong, to be in relationship with him and each other, and to be caretakers and beneficiaries of everything else he created. It matters that he didn't use evolution as a tool to create, because death and its evil causes were never part of his design or plan for this world. He made you to be eternal, and it is the theft of that identity which has directly caused the crisis of identity, which is now epidemic in this generation. But even theistic evolution says death is natural, not a curse, not a consequence of the fall of man through the original sin of the first man. And if death is not a consequence of sin, then for what reason did God plan for the redemption of mankind from the very first chapters of Genesis where the gospel is recorded? Why did Jesus have to die if not to break the curse of sin and death? Why did the grave need to be defeated if it was natural instead of an unnatural state from which we needed to be saved and restored to eternal life? The Apostle Paul writes that all of Christianity is meaningless if Christ didn't in fact rise from the dead as he did. Therefore, all of Christianity is also meaningless if Jesus Christ didn't also have to give his life as an atoning sacrifice as the perfect man for the remission of our sin and defeat the grave. Evolution is a satanic lie with demonic results. You are not an accident. You are designed by an intelligent mind, a personal God, and have an eternal destiny. The meaning of life is only an unsearchable mystery to evolutionists and naturalists who are unarmed to explore the transcendent metaphysical realities of this life. The meaning of life is truth, pursuing truth, discovering truth, and sharing truth. Jesus announced that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Evolution leads away from truth, Genesis reveals the truth and all of Christian doctrine, including the gospel, has its foundation and foreshadowing in Genesis. If you or someone you know is struggling with their identity or even the self-evident realities of identity, it's probably because they have not fully embraced the truth of Jesus Christ as revealed 
in just the first 11 chapters of Genesis. It is world history, despite the opinions of some, but far from all scientists, who make the evidence say what they want it to. The science says nothing. It's silent. Science evolves. Technology evolves. But they are not undirected. Scientists say what their prejudices and biases and passions and worldviews demand they say. But science says nothing. God says he created everything in six measured days and rested on the seventh, a pattern all of humanity has never departed from, except the trade unions who now want a four-day work week. Evolution was not involved because death was not involved, because you were created with a design and a purpose in this life and an eternal destiny without death. The great philosopher C.S. Lewis said, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. You were made for paradise, an eternal existence without death or suffering, and naturalistic evolutionary philosophies cannot explain the desires in your soul for a world different to this. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, and it begins where he said, in the beginning. In this episode, I'm privileged to sit down with perhaps the world's most foremost teacher of the history recorded in Genesis, the founder of the ministry called Answers in Genesis, and an Australian who is making the undiluted gospel heard by millions upon millions of people in America and internationally, the one and only Ken Ham. I'm Dave Pellow, and this is The Church and State Show. May all that you stand for and that we stand for be preserved under the providence of God for the happiness of mankind. The trouble is caused by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless ideals as if they were old and outworn machines. But it is the values of individual liberty, equality before the law and the supremacy of people over the state to which we can always with confidence return as a powerful and uniting force. Australia is not a secular country. It is a free country. Ken, thank you so much for making the time to join the Church and State Show. Hey, my pleasure, Dave. Great to be able to talk with you. Now, you actually started in one of my favourite towns in all of Australia as a science high school teacher in the town of Dolby. And I think you actually started that career before I was born, if I can be so cheeky. Well, uh, yeah, my first teaching appointment was Dolby and it was in 1975. Wow. So, seems like a long time ago, but... It seems like a lifetime for me. <laughs> so how did you go from science high school teacher to the CEO of a incredibly successful tourist attraction and apologetics ministry? Well, that is a long story. You know, it takes millions of years to tell it, except I don't believe in millions of years. So, uh, actually, you know, I was brought up in a Christian home and my father was a teacher, he was a principal of primary schools. And he was transferred around the state of Queensland every three years, basically, because he was promoted. And he was an ardent Christian. Uh, he studied God's word as a teacher. Uh, and, you know, when he was uh, growing up at 16 years old, his father passed away. And he said that 
he didn't have an earthly father then, so he turned to the words of his heavenly father. So he saturated himself wow. in the word of God and he really studied the word of God. Nice. And he found this godly young lady, uh, my mother, and they were married and they had six children altogether. But we were transferred around the state of Queensland and because my father had studied God's word so much, you know, <laughs> praise the Lord, he didn't go to theological college or to Bible college. Uh, I say that with you know, a little tongue in cheek, uh, but there are people over the years that have said to me, how come you can preach the way you do and teach the way you do? And I say, because I didn't go to theological seminary or Bible college. Mm. I don't want that to be a hit against them, but sadly, the majority of them do compromise God's word when it comes to Genesis. And unfortunately, they are undermining uh, the authority of the word of God. But that's another issue, and we can talk about that. But we encountered a lot of liberal pastors as we were uh, you know, being transferred to different towns. It might only be one or two churches and you know, be a pastor that would say, a uh, little boy took out his loaves and fishes, everybody else did the same, it wasn't a miracle. So my father really taught us how to answer the skeptics of the day. And he wanted to make sure that we weren't gonna be led astray by liberal theology. Really? So, he didn't use the word apologetics, but you know, that's what he's really doing. Mm. And so when, when a pastor got up and said he believed in evolution, immediately my father would go to him and open the Bible and in front of us as kids, uh, show God's word and say, you can't do that. So that's the sort of background I had as a child. Your fate was and, sealed. <laughs> exactly, yes. And when I was 10 years old, actually, my parents were involved in running a program with the open air campaigners in Innisfail. And it was at one of those programs where I signed a piece of paper saying, I'm willing to go wherever God wants me to go and do whatever God wants me to do. Wow, and so, so good. that goes back to, uh, yeah, when I was 10 years old. So when I became a teacher, one of the things I uh, did was um, start to teach the kids about creation because the first class that I took at Dolby High School, students had heard I was gonna be heading up the Christian group in the school. And they said, sir, we heard you're a Christian. I said, yes, well, how can you be a Christian when we know the Bible's not true? I said, how do you know the Bible's not true? Because of what the textbooks were teaching about evolution and millions of years. Mm. And then one of the students said, but sir, Noah couldn't have fitted all the animals on the ark. I did ask him how many animals were needed and he didn't know and what size the ark was and he didn't know that either, but he knew it couldn't be true. Yeah. And so I started to really teach them, because we had the freedom to do that back in those days in the public schools, and I taught them about creation. Now, I taught them about evolution, but showed them why that didn't work, and made sure they knew what was in their textbooks. I, you know, I even tell Christians today, your kids need to know all about evolution, but why it's wrong. You, know, yes. you can't avoid not teaching it. It's, it's a worldview that permeates the whole culture, so Correct. you need to make sure you're teaching them, but teach them in the right way. Teach them why it's wrong. And I remember one day I was talking about the Tower of Babel, and I had three girls in my class from the Aboriginal community who came up afterwards and said, sir, please tell us more. And then I realized how important it was to them when I was telling them we're all related, we're all one race. Because you know, Darwin taught that the Australian Aboriginals were closer to the ape-like ancestors than others. And they were basically the missing links mm. in evolutionary history. And there were scientists that sent people to Australia to kill the Aboriginal people to get specimens for museums around the world. So. I realized how important it was to deal with that race issue as well, that we're all one race, we all go back to, to Adam. And as I was taking the students to museums, they're always from an atheistic perspective. And actually back then, so I'm talk we're talking 1975, 
I was crying out to the Lord and saying, why can't we have a creation museum? Why can't we have something that teaches them the truth? And so I was there in Dolby for a couple of years and then got uh, transferred to Brisbane. In 1977, I and another school teacher ran the first ever creation apologetics conference in Australia, as far as we know. Wow. Uh, was there in Brisbane. And I displayed some of the books I had because when I was going through university, I was dealing with this issue of evolution that was being taught. And I had researched to try to find materials to give answers. And I already had accumulated some materials I imported from different places around the world and had slowly been building up a library. These books weren't readily available in Australia. And I displayed them at this conference. And after I had displayed them, the people come up and said, how do we get these? And you know, my father, I often sort of uh, look at Nehemiah and say he had that Nehemiah anger, and that is a righteous anger. When something was wrong, why doesn't somebody do something about it? Good. We need to fix this. And so uh, I had that Nehemiah righteous anger, if you like. Well, why doesn't somebody do something about this? So my wife and I started a, a bookstore in our house uh, in Queensland, oh, wow. in Sunnybank in Brisbane, Sunnybank Hills, actually. And that was in 1977. And then 1979, I went full-time in this ministry because I, I found as well as we started to import those books and then more and more people were asking for talks uh, to be, come to their church and so on. And so it really got to the stage where I had to decide between school teaching or the ministry. It was a big faith step back then. In fact, I look back and say, how do we do that? We didn't have any money or anything like that. Uh, there was someone who owned a fruit and vegetable shop who used to drop off a box of fruit and vegetables every week to make wow. sure we had food for our kids and so on. But that's how the ministry sort of started uh, in Australia, in Brisbane. And then in 1980, I went on my first trip to the USA and the publisher of Creation Apologetics books that we'd been importing into Australia wanted me to come and do some speaking tours, which I did. And then I, I realised that well, if you're going to build a creation museum, the place to do it would really be in America because it was the center of the business, uh, the business world, the center of the Christian world as well. And then the Institute for Creation Research asked if I would come and help them because we were selling more of their creation apologetics books in Australia than there were in America. Mm. And the reason was because of the message I was giving to the church on the relevance of Genesis. In yeah. other words, not just technical scientific messages, but dealing with the relevance of Genesis, how it's foundational to the rest of the Bible, to all of our doctrine, That's to so our vital. worldview. It is absolutely vital. And when, pe when people get that, uh, the, the, the light bulb goes on. In fact, So I, I've had um, Genesis Apologetics Ministries at my conferences before, because I like to exhibit and mm -hmm. showcase other ministries that people should mm -hmm. be interested in to help them uh, on the theme of what they came for, and that is influencing culture. And, and I have to admit, I've, I've not seen a really good connection between defending the, the literal, literality of Genesis to the modern political uh, issues that are debated hotly in the public square. Um, but I'm increasingly coming to see it. Uh, and maybe you can articulate for me what is the connection? What is it that people were starting to see back then in Australia that made the book sales so popular? Well, when I started to explain that, look, all of our doctrines are founded in Genesis 1 to 11. 
the gospel is founded in Genesis 1 to 11. See, people have all these nebulous ideas about things. And even in the church, you know, they know that, yeah, marriage is, has, you know, traditionally been a man and a woman and, and so on. And we've got certain rules and what's right and what's wrong. But actually, most people don't understand the connection why we believe that. They know it's got something to do with the Bible. But I started to show them that, hey, where's the origin of marriage? It's in Genesis 1 to 11, when God made man from dust, woman mm. from his side. And Genesis 2, 24 says, you become one because you're one flesh. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 19, when asked about marriage, actually quotes the text of Genesis 1, 27, God made the male and female, and then Genesis 2, 24. And Jesus didn't seem to think it was poetry. He quoted it as history. I mean, mm. Paul, the Apostle Paul does the same in Ephesians 5, actually, in regard to marriage. So the origin of marriage is in Genesis. Why do we wear clothes? Uh, well, humans wear clothes because God gave clothes because of sin. Genesis 3.21, actually, and was a set up of the sacrificial system pointing to the one who would be the ultimate sacrifice. Where's the uh, origin of the seven-day week? Well, that's in Genesis. God made everything in six days and rested for one. Oh, why, why are we sinners? Well, the origin of sin is in Genesis when Adam fell. Genesis 3, when the devil came and tempted Adam and Eve, did God really say you can become as gods? And so uh, we read about the fall of man. There's the origin of sin and then the judgment of death. You know, God had already said to Adam, if you disobey, you will surely die. The origin of all the basic entities of life in the universe are right there in Genesis. You see, once, once a light bulb goes on, it's interesting, right before we did this interview, actually, I met somebody outside uh, who had heard me speak at the conference I was speaking at uh, the night before, and he said, I'm a new Christian. And he said, I must admit, I've been to church and heard messages, but I, it, it just, I still don't get it all. And he said, when you gave that talk last night, the light bulb went on, he said, I now understand because Genesis 1 to 11 is like a foundation to a house. And once you have that foundation, then you know what, why we believe what we do and what we believe about everything. This because new Christian said that to you. He said, the new Christian said that to me. Yes, because this is, um, uh, because Genesis is the foundation for everything. Mm. It, uh, it really is. And uh, so as I explained that to him, uh, he... Um, realized that, yes, everything is found in Genesis. Uh, one of the things I said to them last night, Genesis 1 to 11 is the foundation for all doctrine. It's the foundation for our Christian worldview. It's the foundation for everything. There's nothing that's not founded in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. And once you get that foundation, everything comes from that. And you see, what comes out of that is your worldview. Everyone has a worldview. You know, you know even atheists, have a worldview, obviously, but it has a different foundation. Its foundation is there's no God, everything comes about by natural processes. But you see, atheists claim they don't have a religion. And Christians, many of them say, oh, well, they don't believe in God. I guess they're not religious. Wait a minute, everyone has a religion because everyone right. has a worldview. Yeah. Your religion is your worldview. It's the way you think. And so I find that most Christians haven't been taught correctly about worldview, that we all have a worldview. A worldview starts from either God's word or it starts from man's word. And that began back in the garden 6,000 years ago. So can I ask you, do you think the apologetic for Genesis 1 to 11 or, or the, the, um, the, the exposition 
of Genesis 1 to 11 is something that we should be predominantly arguing in the public? Or do you think it's, it's just that we haven't got a strong foundation, we need to argue it dominantly better in the church so that we can then diverge into the details of the important public issues being debated? Okay, let me put it to you this way. When we look at all the issues of today, we could start to list them off. There's the abortion issue, there's the gay marriage issue, there's the gender issues, euthanasia issues, racism issues, pedophilia, which is raising its ugly head as well. Mm. We have all these issues there. And for many Christians, they think, okay, we've got to deal with all these different problems that we have in our culture. You know, we've got the gay marriage problem, we've got this transgender problem, we've got this abortion problem, and so on. If people really understood worldview, if Christians understood worldview, they would recognize that they're not all different problems, they're all the same problem. The problem is they have the wrong foundation of man's word. So if they all have the same problem, they've all got the same solution. And what is the solution? The solution is the truth of God's word and the saving gospel. Now, here's my point, and I don't want people to misunderstand me here, but when you have generations that have been told there is no God, and the Bible's not true, and man determines truth, then out of that comes moral relativism. In other words, anything goes. It's like Poison. in the book of Judges, Judges 21, 25, when there's no king to tell them what to do, they all do what's right in their own eyes. Mm -hmm. But when you have that philosophy that anything goes, there is something that doesn't go, and that is the absolutes of Christianity. Therein lies the conflict. In other words, you've got this worldview conflict, moral relativism, anything goes, Christianity, God says, here's what's right, here's what's wrong. Marriage is a man and a woman. There's only two genders. Uh, God made man in his image, made them male and female, Genesis 1.27. So now you've got this conflict. And here's the interesting thing. In our culture, you have people saying, well, you Christians give hate speech, you Christians are intolerant, right? And they say, because we just want freedom and we want to allow all views, but they're not allowing the Christian view that's built on the absolute authority of God's word. Yes, because there's mm -hmm. that conflict. So we're seeing that worldview conflict. Here's what we need to understand. To deal with that worldview conflict in an ultimate sense, you've got to start at the foundational level down here. Now, you, you, you can deal with it at all levels, but if you're not dealing with it foundationally in the long run, it's not going to work. And, and, and so what, what I really need to help people understand here is the fact that if you're going to go and argue about these issues and you think I shouldn't use the Bible because I'm a Christian in public, we can use the Bible in church, but we don't use the Bible out there in public. If you don't have the Bible as your foundation, you've got no foundation for your worldview. And so what I do when I'm talking publicly, like I gave, I, I went to a university where, a secular university to give a public lecture. I was invited by a Christian group, but then got banned because the LGBT group said I gave hate speech because I believe marriage is a man and a woman. It got into the newspapers. This was in America, in the state of Oklahoma, actually. And because of all the furor and politicians threatened to pull funding from the, from the university, they allowed me to come back. In fact, they invited me back to give a public lecture, which is even a, you know, a, a greater opportunity. Praise God. And when I, when I went there, We've got, there were politicians there, we had secular media there, uh, the LGBT group that had me banned in the first place was there, sitting in a whole row of seats, a lot of the professors from the university. 
and they right. gave this big disclaimer before I spoke. But then what I did was <laughs> I got up and, I, see, they were expecting me to come in. Uh, oh, he's a Christian. He's going to come in and say, that's sin and that's wrong and that's evil and LGBT evil and all the rest. But how can you impose your Christian worldview on someone if they don't have the foundation for it, right? It's not going to work. Right. So I came in and said... That does seem the rub, that we're going to be saying, yeah, but the Bible says, and we're talking to people who reject the whole foundation because they don't share that worldview at all. Well, that, that's where we have to be careful of the way we argue. I would say we shouldn't be coming in just saying, the Bible says this and this is wrong and this is... I, I believe we should do it more like this. This is what I did at the that public lecture. And this is how I argue with people on these issues. I came in and said, I'm a Christian. I said, I really do believe the Bible is the word of God and that the history in Genesis 1 to 11 is true. What I want to show you is what we believe as Christians and why. And if you don't have the same foundation as me, I totally get it. You're going to have a different worldview. So please understand when my worldview conflicts with yours, it's not because I hate you, it's not hate speech, it's because I have a different foundation. But I want you to understand why we believe the way we do. So I started with Genesis 1 to 11 and said, here's why we believe um, in marriage. Here's why we, we believe that we're sinners. Here's uh, why death is in the world. Here's what God's word says about the solution of that. I mean, I gave the whole gospel, everything. Brilliant. But at the, at the end, it was interesting because I had, we had a question time and one of the questions came from an LGBT person who said, I'm an LGBT person, I'm in that group, and it was a woman. And uh, she said, um, I'm a Christian and I believe in you know, gay marriage and um, all the rest of it. And she says, so wh what do you say to that? Because I'm a Christian and, and I believe God's word. So the way I answered that, I said, you know, if you say you're a Christian and I'm a Christian and we're both looking at the Bible, obviously you and I both have a different understanding of God's word in Genesis in regard to marriage, in regard to gender. So we're not going to get anywhere talking about the issues of marriage and gender until you and I sort out why we have this different understanding of Genesis. Because if we don't sort that out, we're never going to get anywhere with the worldview, as you said. So why don't you come and talk to me and let's sit down and talk about why you have a different view of Genesis to me. Now, that person never did that, but I offered that. And at the end of the presentation, I had professors come up to me, non-Christian professors, who said, we just want to let you know we appreciate the way that you presented that. Because I didn't come in you know, bashing. a Bible bashing. Mm. I came in and built from the foundation. And that's the key that's missing, I think, from a lot of churches. They're not teaching this because people don't understand the foundation. And the reason is most of our church leaders have compromised Genesis 1 to 11 with evolution and millions of years or say it doesn't matter or say it's too controversial, it's too divisive. But because of that, when you're not teaching that foundation, because Genesis 1 to 11 is the history in geology, biology, astronomy, anthropology, if you don't have that foundation, you can't deal with any issue. You've got to have that foundation to be able to understand what we believe. Your worldview comes from that foundation. Allow me to interrupt this interview for just a minute as I tell you about some exciting events coming up. On Friday, the 11th of August, 
I'll be hosting a special live studio audience event for hundreds of people in Brisbane with Senator Malcolm Roberts. We will be discussing the big idea mentioned in the preamble of the Australian Constitution, where it refers to the people of the states forming the Commonwealth doing so by humbly relying on the blessings of Almighty God. The title of the event and the question we'll be discussing as forthrightly and intellectually honestly as possible is, who slash what is God? There is a modest ticket price to help cover the venue hire and professional crew, as well as some VIP tickets for functions before and after the main event, but a very special price for full-time students. This nation needs its youth to be exposed to more of this kind of thinking. So come along and tell everyone you know to be in Brisbane on Friday night, the 11th of August, just a few weeks away, and come to the studio audience event with my special guest, Senator Malcolm Roberts. Tickets and more information about all coming events in Brisbane, Perth on the 4th and 5th of August and Adelaide on the 6th and 7th of October are available at the Church and State website, churchandstate.com.au. There are special discounts for financial supporters of this ministry, so also check out the partner page before you buy your ticket at churchandstate.com.au. Oh, and if you're getting anything out of this video, please make sure to share it with everyone you like. Now, back to the conversation. So let me put the, the, the challenge uh, to you that is, uh, I guess, the consensus. Um, and, and I'm not necessarily subscribing to this. Uh, I think most of my audience would reject out of hand any sentence that begins, or, or at least be cynical towards any sentence that starts with, the science says. Uh, but the consensus of really respected, credible uh, um, theologians and apologists and, and Christian leaders, uh, you know, the best of our thought leaders. Um, I mean, I could mention names, but I actually don't want to make it about them individually. But as a, as a class, I think you've already said, there's a lot of them, people we should trust, mm -hmm. uh, who actually have an other than literal view of Genesis 1 to 11. Uh, so... I, I guess, how should we approach it to find out the truth for ourselves, to be independent thinkers? Uh, what's the, the method you're approaching and this with, which you would suggest is the best method, and, and where are they falling down in their method to arrive? In these you know, intellectually honest, credible uh, scholars, how are they arriving at a different conclusion? And, and for the record... Um, you know, some people think it's not wise to stake a position, but I do subscribe to the literal reading of Genesis and a young earth. Do you have two hours? <laughs> um, so we will point people let, to resources on your website right. for the fuller, fuller explanation of this. So you can give the, uh, the, the Reader's Digest version. version now. Let me give you a little practical sort of uh, example here. I was on a radio program and a minister was interviewing me as a Presbyterian minister, actually. And he said, look, he said, you agree you can have different views of eschatology, you know, pre-mill, R-mill, post-mill. You can have different views of modes of baptism, sprinkling, immersion, different views of Sabbath day, different views of speaking in tongues. 
you know, in the church we have some of these different views. And mm. I said, yes, that's correct. And he said, and we have different views about Genesis too. It's the same thing. And I said, uh-uh, uh-uh, it is not the same thing. And if you understand this, you understand the key to, to being able to deal with the issue. When we, uh, within the church, have some theological differences, primarily we're arguing from Scripture. You know, if you're arguing about baptism, someone will say, well, this verse here says this. Well, this one says, says this. Uh, or eschatology. Yeah, over here this says this. Yeah, but here it says this. And what about over here? It says this. You're primarily arguing from Scripture. But when it comes to Genesis, the reason there are different views on Genesis is because, because of what the scientists are saying, because of the millions of years, because of the evolution. In other words, they're taking ideas outside of Scripture and bringing them to Scripture to reinterpret Scripture. That is the issue. That's what it's all about. You don't get the idea of millions of years from the Bible. You don't get the idea of uh, Darwinian evolution from the Bible. All those ideas come from outside the Bible and they've been imported into the Bible. It's interesting, if you look at all the different positions on Genesis that you find in, in seminaries and churches and with, with those sorts of leaders that you're talking about, there's theistic evolution, there's progressive creation, there's the gap theory, there's framework hypothesis. I mean, there's a whole range of different positions, but they all have one thing in common. And the one thing in common is they're trying to fit millions of years into the Bible. And what, why is that? Why is this such an issue? I believe it comes down to... That's a really good question. It, it does. And I'm going to be blunt here. I believe it comes down to intellectual pride. Uh, it, it, it comes down to wanting academic res uh, respectability. If you believe in six literal days and a young earth, you'll be mocked at by the majority of scholars. Uh, you'll be called anti-academic. You'll be called anti-intellectual. And the whole idea of millions of years has been so pushed in our culture, it just permeates the culture, permeates our, our, our thinking. I mean, even when, you know, while we're here in Australia, we went to Corumban Bird Sanctuary. It's one of our favourite places to go. But there's all these signs about millions of years and you see these all I over the place. I have to admit, I'm triggered by every such claim and, in the media. And, <laughs> and, well, you see, you see that there. And why is that? Because if you think about it, evolutionists have to have millions of years or they can't propose evolution. If, if, if the universe is sure. only thousands of years old, what are they going to do? Believe in God? Yeah, and I, that, I think it's a leap of faith that, even that, in millions of years. That God created. Um, so they have to have an incomprehensible amount of time to mm. propose an impossible process. And they get very emotional about that. And that's why there's been such peer pressure out there that if you don't accept uh, millions of years, you're denying science. And that's another aspect of it. The word science just means knowledge, actually. It comes from the Latin scientia. And there's different types of knowledge. You can have knowledge gained by observation in the present world that enables you to build technology. But when it comes to talking about origins, that's a different sort of knowledge. Mm. And, but the, there's this bait and switch where the secularists use the word science for millions of years and use the word science for our technology. And so there's a lot of people, and I find a lot of these theologians who sort of feel that if you don't agree with millions of years, you're denying the science that build technology. They don't understand there's a big difference between historical science, beliefs about the past, and observational science that builds technology. And so there's this incredible peer pressure. You won't be published in the mainline publications. 
and you will be accused of being anti-electional and anti-academic if you don't believe in the millions of years. It's been an incredible, incredible indoctrination uh, that has occurred. And you know, the idea of millions of years came out of atheism, atheism of the 1800s, when atheists said, we don't believe in the flood of Noah's day, had explained the fossils, well, the layers of fossils were laid down millions of years before man. And then many of our church leaders say, we take the millions of years and somehow fit it into the Bible. When you look at the supposed millions of years, it comes from the idea the fossils were laid down millions of years before man, and you fit that into the Bible, here's your problem. In the fossil record, it's a record of death. Not just death, but diseases like cancer, abscesses, arthritis in the bones, in the fossil record. Mm. If all that existed before man sinned, after God created man, he said everything he made, everything was very good. And I challenge these people, how do you how do you mesh diseases like cancer millions of years before man sin? Mm. How, do you, how do you do that? And you know, I've never had any one of them yet give an adequate explanation. I, I personally so, find that the most persuasive argument. I think, the whole death issue. I, I think if you, if you believe in original sin and the curse and the fall of man and, and that's where sin entered the world, it, I mean, you have to throw that out to believe in evolution. And I think that's theologically and, impenetrable. And, you know, here, here's the thing. When a lot of young people today, oh, look at all the death and suffering in the world, can't be a loving God. The atheists will say, how can there be a loving God and, and all the rest of it. Hmm. The thing is that when the theologians have told them, oh, you can believe in millions of years, then God's responsible for all that death, bloodshed, disease, suffering we see. But the Bible makes it clear it's our sin that's responsible. Now, we I've live heard, in a groaning world. I've heard one of your antagonists answer the criticism that millions of years is a recent importation and, and that's where uh, the rubberiness on Genesis comes from. I've heard them answer that, uh, I think it might have been Origen and Augustine also held a, and maybe I've got those two wrong, but I think it's those two, uh, held a, a figurative view of Genesis as opposed to literal. Uh, Augustine before, held, uh, yeah, this well, was Origen, all trendy. Origen is known, known for having all sorts of liberal views. on. The, there's always been people who haven't believed God's word. So just to point to one of them, so what? I mean, it's, it's not a matter of saying, oh, well, this person in history didn't believe it. Well, what does God's word say? We should judge what everyone believes against God's word. I guess the question is, how did word. they come to... Um, a figurative well, view before somebody yeah, was postulating millions of well, years. Well, I think this is where we have to uh, understand. And Augustine uh, took a view of um, uh, the days as different to ordinary days and so on. Although I think he changed a bit over time. But you go back and look at the majority of, of those who uh, believe God's word took a, a very strong stand on six literal days in young earth. John Calvin took extremely uh, strong can stand, for instance, that you can read in his commentaries mm. and, and so on. But he, here's the point that we have to come to grips with, and, and that is, who, who's the authority we should appeal to? Do we, should we be appealing to human authority or to God? The point is we should be appealing to God's authority. Uh, we need to be like Bereans, search the scriptures, see if these things be so. You're absolutely right in that it doesn't appear to be and, and I'm trying to represent the counter-arguments as honestly as I can, but I haven't heard any arguments from Scripture for an old universe, old earth. 
Well, they will try to say the days aren't ordinary days, but the Hebrew but word... But that's eisegeting. But the it's he- not manifestly Right, obvious. the Hebrew word yom, when it's qualified by evening, morning, number, night, means an ordinary day. That's how it is in Genesis 1. The Hebrew lexicons will tell you I, that. I want you to just expand that point just a little bit more, because I think that's actually really helpful, because the debate on yom is there. And, and I, I've heard you say this, and I think it's really helpful, that the qualified day is a literal day. Right. Well, well, whenever the word day is used with a number, the word yom is used with a number in, in the Old Testament, it always means an ordinary day. Whenever, whenever the phrase evening and morning is used, it means an ordinary day. Or whenever the word yom, the word for day, is used with evening or morning or night, it means an ordinary day. And in Genesis 1, you've got for the first day, night, evening, morning, number. And then you've got evening, morning, number for each mm. of the others of the six days. And even for the seventh day, you've still got the number uh, with the word day. So it's very obvious from, from the Hebrew language that they're ordinary days. I know, you know, people will say, well, Genesis 2-4 isn't an ordinary day. It says in the day that the Lord created. Well, it's not qualified by evening or morning or number or night. And there it means time. The word day can mean time. I have people say to me, you know, the word day can mean something other than an ordinary day. And I say, well, of course, that's true. Most words have two or more meanings dependent upon context. But the point is, it can also mean an ordinary day, which is what its major meaning is. And so what, we, what we're really coming down to is here. What has happened to the church? Why do we see massive generational loss from the church? Why do we see a church that's so lukewarm, a church that's so weak in so many ways? because they no longer stand on the authority of the word of God. Because what happened in history, and it began in the 1800s, when the idea of millions of years was popularized, and then Thomas Chalmers, the founder of the Free Church of Scotland, put in a gap between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2. Others developed the day-age theory. Along comes Darwin. They say, well, we'll say God used evolution. Along comes the Big Bang. We'll say God used the Big Bang. And what they were doing was unlocking a door that you don't start with Scripture, you start outside of scripture and use that to reinterpret scripture. And we've got to understand, once you do that, once that mm. door is unlocked, generationally, you'll find people will drift more away from scripture, which is what's happening. That doubt leads to unbelief, which is, it's a slippery slide that has resulted in where we're at today. And I would challenge Christians, look, you can have all these theologians and great scholars claiming that you don't have to take Genesis as literal history and all the rest, but stand back and look. There is something wrong in the church. We have lost younger generations from the church, and the church is not having an impact on the culture like it did. And most Christians don't even know how to defend their faith, and they don't really even know what they believe or why they believe what they do. Something is wrong. Don't just look at the culture and say, what's wrong with the culture? Look at the church and say, what's wrong with the church? Why is not the church able to deal with these issues or impact the culture like it used to? I think you're spot on. And, and in another way of saying it is that uh, I think many Christians would resonate, uh, you know, concerned Christians would resonate with the idea that there is too much similarity between the church and the world. There is too much of the external culture permeating and being uh, appeased in the internal culture of the church. Instead of being willing to unflinchingly, undilutedly stand for the word of God and for what he says, regardless of the popularity or winsomeness of the gospel, uh, they are instead 
looking for ways to be less offensive, less troublesome to those people that, quite frankly, are determined to be offended. Well, you know, we're in a spiritual battle. And by the way, that's the other thing that we've got to remember. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Wow. We have sinful hearts. You have a sinful heart. I have a sinful heart. We all do. And I don't care how many PhDs or THDs someone has, uh, they have a sinful heart. And we've got to remember that scientists are not neutral. Scientists have a sinful heart. That's right. And a lot of people have this idea that surely scientists wouldn't want to lead us astray. Well, yes, but they have a sinful heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's what the Word of God says. I think this decade, uh, this far into this remember. decade, the idea that scientists are pure as the driven snow the, is naive. Well, people, people maybe are starting to wake up there. Uh, but the, the reason I say that is because people often say, well, surely this person wouldn't want to you know, lead me astray or whatever. But you've got to remember, it's a spiritual issue. You can't deny the spiritual aspect of things and that the God of this world has blinded the eyes of them which believe not. And, you know, to me, when you're talking about issues of origins and purpose and meaning and all the rest of it, anything that has a consensus in the culture, I would be suspicious of immediately. You know, instead of the, these theologians and others saying, but the majority of scientists believe in millions of years. Well, I'd, I'd say, well, then I'd be immediately suspicious because <laughs> the Bible says there's more on the broad way than the narrow way. It's true. And we've got to remember that men love darkness rather than light. See, we have got to look on people as, as having those sinful hearts. Even as Christians, sin we can allow sin to master over us. Look, look at the struggle Paul even talked about. The things I, I shouldn't do, I do. The things I should do, I don't do. Because we still have that sinful heart. That's why we need to be conformed to the image of, of Christ and daily uh, sanctified in, in Christ because we can easily, like Cain, let that sin nature of his master over him and he killed his brother Abel. We, we, we don't want to let that happen uh, to us. And so we've got to understand this really is a spiritual issue. That, that's really the battle that's going on there. And you know what the devil wants to do is to get people away from God's word. If, if, you know, there's a scripture that says there's nothing new under the sun. And if you look at the prophets, the minor prophets, what, what, what were they struggling with? God's people compromised God's word with the pagan religion of the age. Wow. Bringing in uh, child sacrifice, mm. um, bringing in idolatry, they compromise God's word with the pagan religion of the age. It's about time the church woke up to this. You know what evolution and millions of years really are? It's the pagan religion of this age mm. attempting to justify an explanation of everything by natural processes. Naturalism is atheism. And much of the church and our church leaders, maybe many of them unwittingly, mm. have compromised God's word with the pagan religion of our age and it's no different to what was happening with the Israelites when they compromised with the pagan religion of the age. And look what happened. It destroys them. God Judge. judges them. In fact, a sign that God is judging a, a culture is, well, that's Romans 1, turning over Given to over. sexual perversion. Mm, yeah, very, very pertinent point. Um, two final questions, and I'll just bookmark them in case I forget the second. I want to talk immediately about uh, the narrow door and the light of the cross over uh, the door at your ARC exhibit, um, and then we'll finish with advice on where to from here for people who want to be a difference in the culture. So the the ARC exhibit that you you have in Kentucky? It's in Northern Kentucky, I yes. I can't wait to visit. It's got to be on my bucket list. Um, 
uh, so on that, I've heard you explain the narrow door and its relation to the gospel. Um, just the real importance, that, and, and as you said right at the beginning of this, Genesis 1 to 11 is foundational to all of Christian doctrine right now. But I like that you described there's actually a light projected over the, the door of, of your exhibit. Well, yeah, the Ark Encounter is actually uh, one of two. The other one's the Creation Museum, the two leading Christian-themed attractions in the world. And, and the Ark Encounter uh, is a life-size Noah's Ark, so it's one and a half times the length of a football field, half the width of a football field. Uh, Australian football? And uh, Well, it's much the same. Well, <laughs> in, in, in size. And then uh, the 3.3 million board feet, I don't know what that is in cubic metres, but 3.3 million board feet of timber. Wow. And there's a whole park that goes with it and the conference centre and zoo and all the rest of it. And we have 130 exhibits in there. And the Creation Museum is like a whole walk through the Bible, we have planetarium and 4D theatre and the most powerful pro-life exhibit in the world and a dinosaur exhibit and an insectarium and gardens and conservatory and and uh, all that goes up with them. Thousands of people come every day from all over the world to, to those two attractions there. But, you know, when you, um, when you look in Genesis, one of the things we see there is when, when God um, brings judgment, he provides salvation. For instance, when Adam rebelled against God and God brought the judgment of death because of sin, he then promised a saviour. Genesis 3.15 is pointing to the saviour. And Genesis 3.21 too is pointing to the cross. The first blood sacrifice is a covering for their sin. That, that was the origin of clothing. When, when people rebelled against God in a massive way at the time of Noah, God said he was going to judge with the flood. But in judgment, God provides salvation. And so he told Noah to build this ark. Noah's ark is really a picture of salvation. Mm. And God told Noah, put one door in the ark. Now think about it, why one door? Those who were saved in the ark had to go through one door to be saved. Now jump ahead, God's son steps into history, promised back there in Genesis 3.15, become Jesus Christ the God-man, to die on a cross, be raised from the dead, offers a free gift of salvation. But what did Jesus say? I am the door. Mm. I mean, if any man enter in, he'll be saved. And actually, there's a number of doors in Scripture. You know, there was a, the door to the sheepfold. Uh, there was the door they had to put the blood on the posts, the Israelites, um, and, 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 you know, which was symbolic of Christ and his uh, sacrifice and so on. Uh, and there's the door to the ark. Jesus said, I am the door. And so at the ark encounter, on the inside and the outside, the outside at night, uh, the doors lit up with a cross. And on the inside, we have a light there. It's the most photographed part of the Ark Encounter when families stand there. And we have the teaching associated with it saying, as Noah and his family went through a door to be saved, so we need to go through a door. And that door is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. He's our Ark of Salvation. Yes. And you know, the Bible tells us very clearly after the flood that a rainbow would be a reminder to us of a covenant God made between God and man and the animals that he would never again send a global flood. It's a true meaning of the rainbow, by exactly. the way. Exactly. I love he, how you're reclaiming that. He, he would never again send a global flood. But there is going to be another judgment, and that judgment is by fire. And in judgment, God provides salvation. Do we have an ark of salvation? The answer is yes, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's right. 
And if we don't go into that ark of salvation, the Bible tells us we would have a second death, which is eternal separation mm. uh, from God. And so that door of the ark is a picture of salvation and we can talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, that's the reason we do what we do at Answers in Genesis. That's the reason I do what I do. Um, it's not about some argument about fossils and the age of the earth. I mean, that's all a part of the apologetics to help people see we can defend our faith. We're not going to compromise God's word. But the whole point of what we're doing is to say God's word is true. And not only is the history in the Bible true, but the message of the gospel based in that history is true. That's what it's all about. So for those people who are watching, uh, who are born again, spirit filled, conservative Christians, for those people who may be new Christians and, and less theologically formed, and for those people who are right thinking and not yet Christians, but very sympathetic and appreciative of Christian cultural values, what advice would you give them now to best equip them to apply the, the learning we've had here today and personally become agents of influence for the cultural reformation that we need to see in ourselves as well as our nation to address the, the regression and erosion uh, of, of everything good and true? Well, that's an interesting question. And I, let me give you a little analogy here. Do you remember when in the scripture, Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus? Lazarus was dead. Uh, the Bible says we're dead in trespasses and sin. If we're not a Christian, we're dead in trespasses and sin. And what did Jesus do when he came to the tomb of Lazarus? He said, move the stone away. Now, he could have moved the stone with one word, one thought. He's God. He could do anything. But he got them to move the stone away. And then what the people couldn't do, he did. And that is raise the dead. Remember, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So... As an analogy, I'm saying there's a responsibility aspect and there's a sovereignty aspect. And, and we see that all the way through scripture, that balance between responsibility and sovereignty. So you move the stone away. Make sure you equip yourselves. Make sure you get those answers. That's why we have answersandgenesis.org website, why we have our streaming platform, why we have all these books and the answers books. Get yourself equipped with answers to the attacks on God's word today. You need to make sure you have those answers so when people when you go out there and you're saying, well, the Bible is my foundation. Oh, we don't believe the Bible. Why don't you believe the Bible? Well, because of carbon dating or because, you know, dinosaurs or how do you know there's a God? Or you've got to be equipped with answers. So Christians have to study. People have to study. You can't just go out there and just say, I'm just going to wing it. You, you know, study to show yourself approved. Workman unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. Make sure you get yourself equipped with those answers. And don't just... Look on it as an academic argument or debate because we need to be directing people to the word of God yeah. that saves because we can't change people's hearts. And that's the thing we've got to remember. You, 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 we, our responsibility is to use every argument we can to powerfully confute, to dispute, to argue. That, that's what scripture uses, those sort of terms. But in doing that, pointing them to the word of God because only God can open someone's heart. So the work of the Holy Spirit on their heart. Only God can do that. Only God can save someone. Uh, we are to go out there and preach uh, and, and preach the word of God, uh, but we don't do the saving. So we need to make sure we're equipped, rolling the stone away, pointing them 
to the resurrection and the life, the one who saves and who raises people from the dead. You know, an, another passage of scripture I think of is a nobleman who entrusted resources to his servants. And then he said, I'm going to go away and you do business till I return. And of course, that parable is all about the fact that Jesus is that nobleman. He's entrusted resource to each one of us. It could be material resources. It might be talents of music or speaking or whatever it is, artistry. But he's going to go away, which he's ascended to heaven, but he's going to return. And you do business till I come. Be on about the business of the king till he returns. So don't just sit back and do nothing. We can't do that. A lot, of, a lot of Christians just say, oh, it's so depressing. Look what's happening in the culture. I just feel overwhelmed. I can't do anything. No, be on about the business of the king till he returns. Even if it's mm. just, just impacting one person upon one person, upon one person, you know, do what we can to do the business of the king till he returns. That's brilliant. Thank you very much, Ken Ham. Um, it's a great honour to sit down with you and to have uh, an hour of your time. Oh, our pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of the Church and State Show. Uh, the resources that you can uh, that were mentioned in this video are at the bottom of the screen, answersingenesis.org, where you can get a lot more unpacking of some of the topics we've just skimmed the surface of today. Make sure you're subscribed to email updates uh, from me, davepello.com where you can also become a weekly or monthly supporter. Uh, and thank you very much to the supporters who do make this possible uh, to continue the ongoing mission of media honesty and, and informing and arming Christians to influence culture. A reminder to head to the Church and State website, churchandstate.com.au, to see details of upcoming events in Perth, Adelaide and Brisbane and to subscribe to the emails there so you will get updates on new events as they uh, happen as well. We've got some very exciting events happening uh, this year in Brisbane as well, so uh, stay tuned for that live audience opportunities. Uh, but until next time, thank you for watching, and we will see you in the next episode. God bless you and Australia. Today, we need a special kind of courage. Not the kind needed in battle, but a kind which makes us stand up for everything that we know is right, everything that is true and honest. We need the kind of courage that can withstand the subtle corruption of the cynics, so that we can show the world that we are not afraid of the future.